Turn in your Old Testaments to Isaiah 40, 18 through 26. Isaiah 40, 18 through 26. Now I want to ask you a question. The Israelites were carried off into Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed. They lost their homes. They lost their place of worship. Why did that happen? Well, we learn in Isaiah 39 why it happened and the prophecy of how it was going to happen. And it happened because the Israelites turned away from God and they worshipped other idols. They tried to, to make their life in other ways and to pull levers rather than worship God. And here they are in Babylon and they have gone back. They have seen exactly what the problem has been. And now there are all these Babylonian idols and gods around and here's the most powerful nation in the universe but they are beginning to realize that those idols are not God that they can turn back to God in fact they would look back and read Isaiah 40 right after the prophecy of being carried off was this wonderful prophecy that God if they would turn to him would take them back and so they are encouraged in Babylon I, I wonder if they thought about the difference between those idols and God. In fact, I'd like you to turn to 1 Samuel 5, 2 through 7. It's a great text that illustrates the difference between Almighty God and these idols. They may have remembered that during the time of David, the Philistines captured the ark of God and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They captured God's ark. Remember, that's the little box with the Ten Commandments in it where His name dwelled, His glory dwelled. The Israelites started thinking that was kind of the power instead of God Himself and were putting their trust in the ark. And so God had the ark taken away. And the Philistines took it and put it in their temple. We read, they took the ark of God, verse 2 of 1 Samuel 5. They took it and brought it to the house of Dagon. Now that is a fertility god, kind of like Baal. Dagon was actually a god that came from Babylon. They put it in the, the house of Babylon and set the ark up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down before the ark. Now, notice these words. They're, they're real important. So they took Dagon and put him back up into place. Now, that should be a little clue. I don't, we don't need a God that you have to lift back up. We don't need a God that we put into place. But that's exactly what Dagon, fallen down, has to by humans be lifted back up, propped back up, put back into place. But when they rose, verse 4, early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and his hands had been cut off and there was nothing left but the trunk of Dagon. So Dagon, the God, is now crumbling to pieces before the ark of the Lord. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold where his head fell in Ashdod to this day. And there are gods like Dagon all around them. And they're remembering now, you know, God is God. Our problem is that we turned away from God. 
We, 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 we turn to these fertility gods. We're, we're farmers. That's the rain god. It's the, the god that makes the, the calves give birth. And we wanted to be wealthy. We, we wanted to be prosperous. And so we looked to those other gods. And you know, there are a lot of things today as we look around that seem so powerful, the messages we hear about what you really need to be okay, what you've, what you've got to pursue and commit to, to for your life to, uh, to work properly in, in, in modern society. And it's so easy to go along with what we see, isn't it? But God is still greater than anything, even to this day. And, and we must worship Him. The Bible says over and over we worship Him alone and not other gods. And the question becomes whether we are going to be willing to receive by grace what God wants to give us from His hand and wait upon Him and worship Him or whether we're going to try to take what we want through idols. Are we going to receive from the God who loves us through grace by His hand or are we going to take things for ourselves? I want to read our text to you, Isaiah 40. 18 through 26. Whom then will you compare God to? What image will you liken God? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot, and they look for a skilled worker to, worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He, God, stretches out the heavens like a canopy and He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He, this is great to hear in Babylon, isn't it? He brings the princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted. No sooner are they sown. No sooner do they, the rulers, take root in the ground. He blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one, calls them each by name because of His great power and mighty strength? Not one of them is missing. Now, this morning, I want to explain this passage to you by using highly sophisticated language. Very theologically precise and complex. You're going to really have to put your thinking cap on to get this, okay? Are you all ready for the, the complex language? Here's what this passage teaches. Idols little, God big. Why do I worship idols? Okay, that, that's the really complicated theological formula. Idols little, God big. Why then do I worship idols? The text begins by talking about how little idols are. Verse 19, the, the metal worker casts it. The, the goldsmith overlays it. They're making a god. Humans make gods. 
They put chains around it. They look for a skilled worker, craft the wood and set it up, quote, that it will not topple. Franz Dalek says the thing carries its own satire, meaning it's a joke. It's a joke before the living God. David McGinna says that God describes idols like cartoon gods. It's almost like he's making a satire. It's like a cartoon god. And so, you know, the, the, the person that makes the idol makes the idol. And in the cartoon and the little bubble in the cartoon, you know what, the, what they think? The little bubble after he makes his god, he says, this god is perfect. How do we keep it from falling over? You see, there's some, some satire here. I laughed when with my own ears I heard David Garland in speaking from and teaching on the book of Isaiah years ago, Old Testament scholar, I laughed when he began to just mock the, the, the idols in Babylon. He said, oh yes, your, and he had a little Virginia accent, your little God that, that you make and you have to tack him up in the corner so the wind won't blow him over. <laughs> idols little. The wind won't blow him over? You're going to worship that? But you say, well, let me tell you. Do I look primitive to you? Do I look that backward to you? I would never worship a piece of stone. I would never worship a piece of metal or a piece of wood, even if it were laid over with gold. True enough. But you'd worship a little money and a little sex. And a little power. Idols. They are anything that we give our heart to more than God. God is to be the first and only. What is it that we really feel like will make our lives? What is it that we're going to commit to to try to make it work, to see it make our lives, to see it bless our lives Whatever it is that we allow to rival God, even if it's intermittent, this is what we are worshiping. You do know human beings are inherently religious. You can tell me all day, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. Well, guess what? You do. You're worshiping something. You may be worshiping the big three, you know, are money, sex, and power. That's why you're going to hear that. That's the big three in the Bible. You, you, you may be living for money even though you don't believe in God. Uh, yeah, money's your God. Or sex or power. Men are inherently religious. We are looking for something to give our hearts to. We are looking for something that can make our lives better. John Calvin called the human heart an idol factory. Just producing idols by the day. It's true. Each of us today, every one of us, walked into this sanctuary with some shrine in our hearts to something the pastor included. We struggle with idolatry. When I went to India, uh, everywhere I turned, there were gods. You know, some big ones and shrines on the side of the road and all these gods. And I mean, every restaurant you went to, there was a god. Some of them were real ugly. It's like not real appetizing. It's like, yuck, past the tofu though, anyway. Um, and then others were, you know, they would choose like some of the traditional symbols and every home that you went into had a God. And so I asked, I think it's called the land of six million gods. I asked the, the, you know, that was the ugly American that had to ask a million questions. 
And so I said, where did all these gods come from? Who decides what God is and what He looks like? They said, oh, you don't know. Each family creates their own God. And, and then sometimes their children will adopt the family God and sometimes the family God will get passed down from generation to generation. Well, you know the question I ask next, don't you? How do they choose? Oh yeah, it's real easy. They choose their gods based on what they fear the most or desire the most. What a coincidence! That's what we do here! That's what our gods are. They may not be ugly things on the wall, but they're exactly what we desire the most or the thing that we fear the most and what we think will protect us from loss in that fear. But I'll tell you something, and I'll go more into detail in a moment about this. Once we give an idol power, it is relentless. And we have to have more and more to feel what we want to feel. There's diminishing returns with an idol. You don't get more and more. You, get, you give more and more and you get less and less as you give more and more. He's not satisfied with what you've given or it and you're not satisfied and less satisfied as this relationship with this idol goes forward. And it doesn't work because it can't. Because money is not God. And sex is not God. And power and popularity and influence, they are not God. And they, they cannot give you or me what only God can give us. You can't compare a, a God to a little idol tacked up in the corner or these other things. So first, what is it? Idols, little. Second, God big. God big. Look at verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. A great Middle Eastern type of illustration there of a canopy and a covering. He brings the princes to naught and he reduces the, the rulers of the world to nothing. Have you not heard? Do you not know? Answer, yes we do and yes we have. Just like us. Yes, they had heard that there is only one true and living God who cannot be represented adequately, even near adequately by any image, who cannot be housed in a building, who is free and all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-glorious, all-loving. Yes, they did know, and Isaiah is reminding them of what they already know about God, just like we need to be reminded about what we know about God. Have you not heard? Have you not read? You know, a lot of what I say up here kind of comes down to whether you receive the Bible as God's Word. Yes, we know. The Word of God has told us. He sits, symbol of authority, he sits enthroned, there it is, he's the one who is on the throne, the absolute monarch of the universe, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, he is transcendent, 
He is not to be confused with His creation. He rules over the cosmos easily with no trouble because He is the all-powerful God. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He not only creates and create, created all that we see, He sustains not one star is ever missing. He calls them all by name. Why? Because He is all-powerful. Idols little. God big. And before Him, people are like grasshoppers. I want you to think of the person that you fear the most in this world. Grasshopper. I want you to think of the most popular celebrity in America today. Grasshopper. The most beautiful person, grasshopper. The most wealthy person, grasshopper. Before God Almighty. Rulers are nothing. We read in the Bible that God lifts up nations and He puts them down. And you know what? You can't stop Him. You can't stay His hand. It's an amazing thing. God actually called Babylon my servant. God used Babylon to bring His people back to a recognition that He was God. And then when God, at a certain time that was completed, He put Babylon back down. And the Persians then took over and He predicted that in His Word as well. He brings the princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. And may I just say parenthetically, I love my country as much as anybody here. But I read about God lifting up and God putting down, and I think in terms, should the Lord tarry in His coming back, I think in terms of the next centuries, and I just wonder if this country will even be here. I don't know. Because the United States of America, as much as we love it, is nothing, nothing compared to God, the all-powerful. Our God rules, and He overrules in the affairs of men. Our God is God, and that's a great thing to read when you're in captivity in Babylon. It's a great thing to see when you see all these idols and the fact that you can't get away, but you know in your heart, I must wait upon God and receive from His hand what He wants. I can't take it for myself. So, idols little, God big, right? Remember the last part? So if that's true, why do I worship idols? Why do I struggle with idolatry? The answer is simply because we fear not getting what we want. Let me just say it again. We fear not getting what we want. We're not going to wait on grace and a gracious God. We're going to take it. And that's idolatry. Secondly, faith is hard. Faith is hard. You can't see it. That's why we grab. That's why we hug these things so close to us. Thirdly, because we would rather decide what we want to take by giving ourselves to idols than to receive it from God. The world is willingly under the power of idols. There's no idol that makes people worship it. We want to worship idols because those idols at the end of the day are about us and our desires, and our fears. That's why a family makes them up. So we get what we want. So we serve and we pull the levers to get what we want, to avoid what we don't want. 
I was on an airplane the other day with a great young man from India, and we were discussing the difference between karma and grace. And I was, I was struck, and I loved his honesty. I, I just love Indian people. They're, they're kind of like deep southerners. They're just really gracious folks. And, and, and there at the end of the conversation, he said, you know, you know why my religion works? I said, well, no, no, tell me why your religion works. I mean, it's very, you know, I wasn't like beating on him or anything. I didn't only think I told him I was a pastor. That ruins everything. So he said, it works because of fear. And he smiled. He goes, people need to be held in check by fear. My religion is based on fear. That's why it works. And I said, well, you know what? You're going to have to decide whether fear is more powerful than love. Because mine's based on love. And would you rather live under fear or under love? Would you rather live under idolatry, which is fear and levers, or would you rather live under love, you see, of a God of grace? We are the ones who make our idols powerful. And when we commit to them, when we loosen the moorings on our boat and go to sea with them and commit to that trip with that idol to make our lives, they become very, very powerful. They demand our allegiance. They are never satisfied. Sex is not more powerful than God. But when we give our hearts to what is on a screen... We give our hearts to a person at work or in our, in our environment, school, work, whatever environment. It may not be God, but it's bigger than the great Oz in our lives. You see, when we, we, when we go there and, 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 and go on that cruise and, and commit to that to make our lives, you got to understand that becomes the headline of our lives. What feels so good is a noose around our necks because sex is not God and cannot give what God gives. And there's a proper view of that, of course, as a blessing under God. And when you give yourself to needing popularity or power, you become so afraid that you're not going to get it. You become so controlling that you become a different person. I'm going to tell you something. If that's where you are, we don't want to be around you. We don't want to be around a shark, even a nice, sweet southern shark who's all about themselves. And it's just basically idolatry, idolatry, idolatry right in the face of everybody around that person. Man, do we struggle? If your image is your idol, let me tell you something. You will wear yourself out. There is no rest. No rest. They don't give you any rest. If you make money or what money can buy your primary desire, you will never have enough. Never. That famous quote, that famous question that was asked of John D. Rockefeller, who was the wealthiest guy in the world at this particular time, they asked him with all his money, they said, how much, how much, Mr. Rockefeller, when do you have enough money? How much is enough? And you know his famous answer, a lot of y'all know, he said, just a little more. Just a little more? With so much, I mean, that is so telling just a little more because that's about making it. That's about the process. That's about identity. That's not just about bank accounts. That's idolatry. That's slavery. I remember talking to a couple years ago that um, were just coming to pieces because they 
they only made a half a million dollars a year and they couldn't make ends meet. I'm, I'm, I'm just not believing what I'm hearing. I said, well, whoa, whoa, no, no, whoa, whoa, rewind the tape. Remember when y'all were going to school and helping each other get through school and like y'all didn't have two nickels to rub together? Did y'all make ends meet then? Yeah. And you're telling me with a half million dollars you can't make ends meet? Why, folks? Why? Because that's a sliding scale, isn't it? Because it's never enough. Because we got to have more. And when we get more, we got to have more. You see, that's not about what you make. That's about slavery. That's idolatry. And, and look, can we just be honest about something? There's some nervous people from what I just kind of went through here. This is all of us. Don't even be thinking about the person down the road from you. Every single one of these things. This is true of me and true of you. We are idolaters and we will pay the price every time we take that cruise. That's what happened. That's why they're in Babylon. We give our idols power because it's what we want. And they are relentless. And they set us up for major disappointments and disillusionments when we finally discover yet again that they cannot give us what a God of grace alone can give us. And you know the other sad thing about idols? When we commit ourselves to other gods, we become as small as our idols. It's so sad. You know, if you're all about you, or if you're all about greed, or all about money, or sex, or power, I mean, I shudder when I think of what we have seen and heard this week about General David Petraeus. This is the big man. This is the great man. This is the guy that you can trust. This is the guy that sends you into harm, harm's way that you won't live if he doesn't make the right uh, decision and you trust him and you have confidence in him. This is the guy you wanted to run for president. And all the greatness, greatness of this man is just about as small as an an illicit, seedy, sexual affair. You see, the great man is tiny now because we are reduced to the size of our idols. It is sad. I mean, this was going to be the new Eisenhower, right? Oh, yeah, he had an affair too. Um, you, this is very prevalent, you know. It reminds me of the story of the conquering Roman general who could not be stopped in the field. And the Roman legions just powered over. And so they conquered territory. And they threw this big parade of triumph for him in Rome. You've seen the movie Ben-Hur, right? Okay, he's in the chariot. He's riding it. Everybody's waving palm branches. Everybody's saying, hail to the general. He's the guy with all the power. Nobody like him. And he can't take his eye off a prostitute on the left side while he's riding through. And the big man, the big man is reduced to somebody who cannot conquer his own heart. He's reduced to his idol. And that's the beginning and the end of it. God is saying to me, and he is saying to you, that idolatry is a spindly, small, cheap 
way to live compared to life with God the good. It is like paint that is so thinned that it's not even paint anymore. It doesn't cover, you see. But the life of grace is thick and rich. It's a life of worship and growth and flourishing love. It is the life that God came up with when He's put Adam and Eve in that garden and said, this is, behold, very good. And I want you to have everything and you will lack nothing and you will love and you will prosper and you will have dominion and you will have meaning. It's a, it's a life that is just thick with meaning with God. But don't eat of the one tree in the garden. No, no. We're not going to be held down by you. We're going to do what we want to do. And that's exactly what happened. And we're still reaching for it. Do you want to be the incredible shrinking person? Eyes on yourself. Or the person who is expansive, growing, peaceful, joyful. Eyes up. Eyes up to the God of goodness and grace and amazing possibilities. You, you look at the last verse in this text and say, look, look, lift up your eyes. Look up. Look at the heavens and see who it is. Is it not me, God says, not these idols? The Word of God is true. We must believe God's Word or we're going to live this tragedy over and over. And we do, don't we? You know, a lot of what I say up here does come down to whether you believe in the Word of God. I, I just want to say, we can argue about whether the Word of God is the Word of God, but let me just make one observation about me and about you. You and I don't even know our own hearts, much less the hearts of other people. You and I don't even know if the people sitting next to us are telling us the truth. How can we determine what ultimate reality is when we don't even know what's real in, in our own four walls, so to speak? That we, we are deceived by ourselves and we are going to decide what ultimate reality is from that vantage point? I think not. No, dear people, we need revelation. We need an external and objective word to sinful, selfish hearts outside of ourselves that will lead us to the one who is higher than we are. We need the peace that comes only from Him and the word that says to us this morning, idols little, God big, worship God, give life to God and not idols. But here's the problem. Is that sinners cannot throw down our idolatry alone. See, that's the catch. So I say, well, hey, then don't worship idols. You can't do it. I can't do it. Remember John Calvin said we're an idol factory. No, we need Jesus. We need a relationship with God. God who has written Himself into the story of humanity. God who loves us. God who has union with us. God who will give power. God who will hear our repentance. We need Him. It reminds me of the story of Eustace Scrub in C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And the movie's out too, if you want to see the movie, maybe later this week. I, I read from uh, some comments by a man named Jonathan Rogers 
He says, Eustace, and I won't go into setting the whole stage. I'll just do my best to be quick here. Eustace becomes what he has already been, been becoming all along. Let me say that again. Eustace becomes what he's already been becoming all along. Eustace is very greedy. Eustace wants to have power over his friends. Eustace basically wants power. Sleeping on a dragon's hoard, you know, the idea that dragons have all their stuff and they hoard it. Speaking on a dragon's hoard, thinking greedy thoughts like a dragon, Eustace becomes a dragon. He's been acting like a dragon, now he actually becomes one. I, I go back to reading. Realizing that he is a dragon, the very first reaction that he has is exactly what the reader might expect from Eustace. He's happy to know that he is the terror of the island, invincible and rich beyond compare. But soon, the greater point of his transformation begins to dawn on Eustace. Dragons may be powerful. Dragons may hoard and have a lot of loot, so to speak. But dragons are banished from humanity. People don't want to be around dragons. We become like our idols. If we just want power, we don't want to be around a shark. If we just are greedy, we don't want to be around that. Because people don't want to be around dragons. Eustace is a dragon. He has more power than he ever dreamed. But he is ultimately lonely. We become what we worship. It's because that's what we really want. His power grew. But as I've told you before, his life shrunk. I want you to think about what it is that you really want in this life or what you're really afraid of and how right now I want you to ask God to show you how you're going about getting it. And um, your life is shrinking if you're not about God. And that's what idolatry does. So Eustace decides that he doesn't want to be a dragon anymore. God, you know, Eustace's heart's changing. He's actually reaching out to people for the first time. You're seeing a massive change in Eustace's heart. He doesn't want to be a dragon. He wants the fellowship of his, his friends, the, the shipmates. And this is when Aslan the lion, who is the Christ figure in this series, encounters Eustace. And, and Aslan, he says, I don't want to be a dragon. Aslan commands Eustace to undress, to just take the dragon skin off. Then don't be a dragon anymore. Take your dragon skin off. And so Eustace begins to scrape and pull and try to get his dragon skin. And you know some stuff is coming off. It's kind of flaking off and there's a pile of dragon something on the floor. <laughs> and uh, the problem is that it's just as fast as he scrapes it off, it, it comes back on. Eustace comes to the end of himself and there's nothing he can do but lie down and let Aslan and his claws do their work. Neither can we get rid of our own idolatry. You just can't scrape it away. So Aslan steps forward to rip it off of Eustace and to make him new again. You will have to let me undress you, Aslan, the Christ figure says. I quote from Eustace as we close. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay there flat on my back and let him do it. 
the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought he had, I'd done it myself three other times, only it didn't hurt when I did it to myself, of course. And there it was, lying on the grass, ever so much thicker, ever so much darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Don't you love Lewis? More knobbly looking dragon flesh on the ground. Whoa. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. But I had returned to being a boy again. Jesus is God coming to the rescue. As Wilson put it earlier, He died on the cross so that we who are unable to change our hearts, we cannot conquer our own hearts, people. We're enmeshed with us, you know. He came to take the sin and the punishment for sin that we deserve to give us new life. And let me tell you something. If you know Jesus, if, you don't, if you've not put your trust in Christ, it's just like you trying to scrape dragon, dragon skin off of you. You're not going to ever get, get it off. If you've not trusted Christ this morning, you need, to, you need to run to the cross and say thank you that you have done this for me and I can have a relationship with you. And if you do know Jesus and, and you're caught up and everybody here is in idolatry. And we're going to have to believe that His mercies are new every morning. We're going to have to turn to Him and say, I see it. I don't want it. You're going to have to undress me from my idolatry. I repent of my idolatry before you. Don't you want to turn to Christ? Did you notice Lewis says that my skin was new, just soft, and I became smaller than I used to be. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Eustace, Eustace got the big head. Eustace was the guy who wanted it all. And when he became new, he became so much smaller because there was all this room for God in his life. Don't you want Christ to undress you of your idolatry? Idols little, God big. Why then do I worship idols? Let's pray. Lord, to whom shall we go? For only you have the words of life. If you've never put your trust in Christ, you get it. You can't make it to God on your own, so he came to you. You can't take away your sins, so he did. And you want that, and God's showing you what it is. You just pray, Lord, I see it, and I want to turn from everything else and put my trust Jesus, and what you have done for me on the cross, forgive me of my sin. Thank you that even now you have come into my life. Even now you've made me new. Even now you will lead me. Lord, I pray that you would keep my eyes fixed on you, Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. But Lord, there are many of us and all of us that have idols that we cherish, that we don't know how to throw down, would you have the courage at this moment to ask God to begin removing those idols? You can name them in your heart. Lord, would you do that? And would you restore a focus and a joy 
Would you help me, Lord, more to wait upon you and receive grace from your hands rather than trying to take things for myself through idols? We bless you that you are the one true and living God and our Savior.